0: Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. In
1: 1957, the family of young Dave Delgado left the suburbs of Los Angeles and moved north to the small town of Chico, where he grew up on Five Acres. Dave Delgado had a 35-year career in public education and has now written a book about adventures with his brother Bebo when they were kids in the 1950s and 60s. The title of his book is Eden Indeed, Tales, Truths, and Fabrications of a Small Town Boy.
2: Southern California's post-war boom was getting to dad. Barstow-based desert rat by upbringing the congestion, the crowding, the smog, the living cheek-by-jowl in the suburbs of Los Angeles was simply not natural to him. It wasn't right. He needed elbow room. He needed clear skies and fresh air. He needed mountains or deserts or pasture lands or orchards. He needed something, anything other than sprawl. To Mom, a native of Houston, and a child of the 1930s poorhouse, the tidy home they'd purchased on Coleman Street in Altadena just after Bebo was born was as much as she dared dream for. Barely past toddling at the time, I certainly have no recollection of the conversations that must have led up to his departure. But in 1957, Dad quit his job as a letter carrier, boarded a northbound Continental Trailways bus, and somehow wound up in Chico. Per that, Perhaps that's as far as t- his ticket would carry him. There, he rented a room from a dowager, looked for work, and tried to live on less than a dollar a day. He eventually landed again with the post office, but it wasn't before three or four months had rolled by, living hand-to-mouth, Working as a casual for a freight company, then a laborer for the local Beacons agent, then a warehouseman for Northern Star Mills. His off hours found him pedaling a battered Columbia three speed round and about through the town in search of a place, the perfect place to raise two boys. Crossing a bridge on Highway 32 one day, he turned left at the old Hacienda restaurant with its whitewashed stucco arches and savory aromas wafting from dishes he knew he couldn't enjoy on the pittance he had in his pocket. He headed west down a worn and windy strip of pavement that tunneled through oaks and sycamores and past sublime cottages with lovely gardens and lawns. He'd gone about a half a mile when he came across a for sale sign fixed to a white three rail fence for the next week and a half he pedaled out that avenue every day after work honeybee he finally wrote in a letter i think i've stumbled onto something walking distance from town he described five and a half acres of almonds and fruit trees with a long driveway to a shaded farmhouse with some workable outbuildings the parcel fronted a whispering creek it may not be paradise, he concluded, but it's closed. Mom wrote back, I'll pack the car.
1: This has been Dave Delgado reading from his book, Eden Indeed, Tales, Truths, and Fabrications of a Small-Town Boy. Dave Delgado, welcome.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Now, you are telling this story— and those things that you tell sound true. Those of us who are familiar with Chico uh, recognize Northern Star Mills, for example. So I assume that everything in this preface is true.
2: To my 71-year-old <laughs> recollection,
1: yes. Because you do say that, uh, like most people who are writing about other people, they sometimes need to change names to, uh, for that, their benefit. So, you're telling us about your parents and how they came to move to this little town of Chico, and you're just a little kid at the time. Right. So, you um, you and your family moved to Chico, and this was 1957. Seven. 1957. And your first story is a story that takes place in 1957, and you were a really a little kid then, but uh, you recount the story, and uh, it, it's 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 um, wrenching for us readers. It's it's the
2: f- it's the first recollection that I had. It wasn't the first story that I wrote, but it was the first recollection that I had. Perhaps because of the event, uh, it was. Different for a seven or a five, six-year-old boy to experience such a thing.
1: Well, now you've mentioned your dad found this place, and it's um, at, uh, close to Big Chico Creek on Bidwell Avenue. So, would you read us what happened to Charlie and Rex in 1957?
2: Okay. Rain-soaked little boy. Ranch Craft blue jeans from J.C. Penney, the old downtown store. Muddy cuffs and knees, and black canvas shoes, maybe Keds, and a white T-shirt caked with mud. Stuck to me. Dripping wet. Excited. Standing in the kitchen. Linoleum floor. Little red brick tile pattern. Muddy footprints leading to a puddle around me. We was throwing sticks. We were, grammar correction, the lifelong job of every mother. But, out of breath, Rex, Charlie's dog, he, he, he would chase him and bring him back. Out in that rain? Yeah, and tears homogenized on my rain-spattered face. Ch- Charlie, he threw one into the creek. The creek? Yeah, and Rex, he chased it right into the water, rubbing both eyes with my muddy knuckles. That water's really moving. I took a breath, and Rex, and he went in and tried to get the stick. I wiped my finger under my nose. Charlie, he got scared. I took another breath, afraid for Rex. I swallow in a gulp. I hollered something. He hollered something, and he chased after him. I pointed my thumb over my shoulder. Rex, Rex is on the patio. I don't think I remember Mom asking a bunch more about Charlie before she flew out the door. If she did, I don't remember what I answered. I do know that all at once I found myself alone in the kitchen standing at a puddle, shivering. Mr. and Mrs. Deaver lived around the corner from from us with Charlie and their little sister and their dog, Rex. The firemen found Charlie lodged under a a tree fallen across the swollen creek just past the Rose Avenue Bridge. For quite a while, Mom made Dad drive quietly past the Deaver house several times, showing respect, she said. Pretty soon, the Deavers moved away and Mom wouldn't let me go near the creek for a long time.
1: This is Dave Delgado reading from his book, Eden Indeed, and that Eden refers to Chico. Of course. (laughs) But now this story, um, the subtitle of your book, Eden Indeed, Tales, Truths, and Fabrications of a Small-Town Boy, and you say this is one of the first memories you have because you were so young and I I'm, it sounds like this is true Dave
2: the names have been changed you know but yeah um, yeah it, it, I, I've had individuals who've read the book comments that's an awfully odd way to start the book yes and uh, as I was compiling the, however many stories there are I looked at a lot of different ways to to arrange things thematically, and it seemed like the chronological order would be make the most sense. And this happened to be the first one.
1: Yeah, I did appreciate the fact that at the title of each chapter, you tell us what year it is, and that's <clears> very helpful, because then we know how old you are, for example. And something else that I enjoyed was that you mentioned specifics. You just don't say, I was wearing a pair of jeans, but... Uh, they were jeans from J.C. Penney, or I mentioned uh, you mentioned Northern Star Mills, and so when you're telling us these stories, you mentioned Rose Avenue Bridge. I name you have a photograph of that bridge that looks just like it does today, because I I often walk by Rose sure. Avenue Bridge, yeah. and so people would recognize that. And your photographs are really helpful. I enjoyed your photographs. Well, Dave I'm glad
2: you did. I, that was a choice we made, kind of toward the end.
1: Aha. Yeah, so in that chapter, you have uh, a photograph. uh, These are all black and white photographs of Rose Avenue Bridge. Now, since this is in chronological order, you tell us about a date, I'm skipping now to 1963. And the title of this book story is The Day My Teacher Cried. And if people make that connection, hmm, 1963, and his teacher cried? And we don't at first, because you start out with uh, rather lighthearted and tell us that um, uh, there was this girl named Rebecca. And who was Rebecca?
2: Oh, uh, well, this, this – uh, Rebecca is actually a combination of uh, little girls that I probably was smitten with, but they never knew.
1: <laughs> this also is typical when I've heard uh, people talk about when they were back in school and they would have a crush on a girl and, and
2: they yeah, – But you'd never – you'd never meant – never say anything.
1: In <laughs> fact, here's what you say. Not that I'd ever spoken to her. God, no, never. Right. <laughs> And another thing, when you reproduce your, uh, 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 these conversations, uh, they sound very realistic, and you read them like, yeah, that little kid. One of the
2: things that I attempted to do as, um, as the, the collection progressed, and I get, again, I did not write the stories in the order they show up in the book, I wanted to see if I could not make the narrator's voice Match the age of the character at the time of the story. So, in the first story about Charlie and Rex, you've got a six-year-old that really can't articulate things. And as we move through the stories, hopefully, the narrator becomes more articulate. That doesn't mean that personally I'm that articulate, but. Uh,
1: but, for example, Oof. Oof. the conversation with this little, say, six-year-old with his mother, yeah. and he uses the wrong verb, and his mother, as mother to do, correct your, mm-hmm. your grammar. And so this seems very realistic, mm-hmm. the way you reproduce this conversation with this little boy, you, yeah. and your mother. Now, um, you also mentioned that your dad had red hair. <laughs> I, mean, I mean that, um, that uh, Rebecca re- had re- red re- hair. Re- re- right. Yeah. And you were in the sixth grade. Correct. So in 1963, as you said, you're, you didn't write these stories down necessarily in chronological no. order. But for your book, it's easier for us as readers to see how this you, the protagonist, grows up. And so in 1963, he has this—he um, really wants to talk to this girl, Rebecca, Rebecca Langworthy, who is not her real name. And uh, then you get to the title of this chapter, The Day My Teacher Cried. So would you start reading there on page 78? Okay.
2: On the day the teacher cried, we had just come in from recess I was thinking thoughts of Rebecca Langworthy, noting her red hair and considering my own, wondering if our children might be redheads. Lifting my eyes from her and her lovely autumn plaid jumper, I noticed that Mr. K was facing the chalkboard. He hadn't turned around. I also realized that my classmates' chatter had subsided and they'd settled in more quickly than usual. Or was I just more mesmerized by Becca than normal? It was arithmetic period. Usually, Mr. K would chalk a problem on the board and then wander through the rows and columns of his pupils, checking to see if we had remembered yesterday's lesson. But this day, he wasn't writing a problem on the board. Instead, his hand was lifted, pinching the the stick of chalk, but it wasn't moving. He seemed frozen. Something was haywire. I'd never heard the classroom so silent for so long. I held my breath along with Nilly and Musty and the others and saw a few kids glancing from side to side. I glanced around also, being careful not to look at Re- Re- Rebecca Langworthy's way. I'm not sure why. That silent eternity ended when Mr. K. Woody lowered his hand the one holding the chalk. Was it still trembling? And he turned to face us. He scanned the room, perhaps making eye contact with each of his students. Then he dropped his gaze to the floor. What came next was nearly inaudible. Boys and girls, what we know right now is that the president is dead. Immediately, the silence became deeper, thicker. It seemed as if all the air had left the room. Mr. K turned back to the board and placed the chalk in the tray. I saw his shoulders shudder. Everyone probably did. Facing the board, he said, Mr. Eldred, our school principal, tells me you'll all be going home to be with your folks right away. Then there was more of that silent eternity. During those cold moments, my 11-year-old thinking rendered this queer thought. There's God. There's Jesus. There's the President of the United States. And then there's Walt Disney. What would happen if something should happen to any one of these? I figured I was about to find out. Soon, Mr. Eldred came on the intercom, and made the announcement. We were to go home. Mr. K stood by the door as we quietly filed out, and he did something he'd never done before. He hugged each one of us. I even believe I felt a tear graze my cheek. It was warm.
1: This is Dave Delgado, and he's reading uh, from a chapter in his book, Eden Indeed, tales truths and fabrications of a small town boy and this I don't think you had to do much fabrication here Dave because I on this that same day I had a math class and I went to my math class and the teacher immediately dismissed it and uh, this this chapter includes a photograph and is this this photograph this Walter Cronkite, when he is wearing his glasses, he takes off his glasses, and you have this photograph of Walter Cronkite there. And that, too, is just burned in my. I think, all of us who were alive at the time. Several years
2: ago, my wife and I were in Washington, D.C. for some reason or other. We went to the Smithsonian. And that picture of uh, Walter Cronkite removing his glasses, there was an actual... Admiral or RCA Victor TV set with that screen showing, and I remember the the rush of memories and getting teary-eyed and choking up because here I was, here we were at that point 35 or 40 years later, and the memory was as clear as if it had happened that day. Yeah. yeah.
1: Again, the, the title of this chapter is The Day My Teacher Cried, and it includes... Photograph of Walter Cronkite behind the microphone, uh, CBS News, that we were all tuned into. My guest is Dave Delgado, and he's written tales, truths, and fabrications of a small-town boy about his growing up in Chico. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Dave Delgado, and he has written a somewhat of a memoir about his time growing up in a small town of Chico. The title is Eden Indeed. Well, on a lighter note, <laughs> uh, young boys often want to try cigarettes because that's a cool thing to do back in the day. And so, um, you include your experience with uh, cigarettes, your first cigarette, and the title of this chapter is Chesterfield Straits. So <laughs> where? Uh, how old are you here when you're wanting to try your first cigarette?
2: Uh, 12, 13. I was behind the time because a lot of the kids were already doing this.
1: Well, uh, you tell us that... Um, your grandfather uh, smoked Lucky Strikes. And here again, you're giving a specific name. So would you read just that first paragraph of that chapter?
2: My grandfather, Hap Bagnell, smoked Lucky Strikes, a habit conferred upon him by the U.S. Army during World War I. So-called tailor-maids were once offered as part of a doughboy's sea rations. Young teens in the 1960s didn't receive C-rations, but we could easily get our hands on cigarettes. Cigarettes made us cool. Cigarettes made us adult. Cigarettes made the girls like us, or so we thought.
1: <laughs> so the first thing you got to do if you're going to try a cigarette, you got to get your hands on a cigarette. Right. Hmm. And so uh, what? how did you reach that point of getting access to cigarettes? I don't, uh, your dad when not you can say, hey, dad, I'd like a cigarette. Well, yeah,
2: because half wasn't going to give me cigarettes, and my dad smoked a pipe. Um, so uh, there was a, a hamburger stand, um, which is referenced in another story, that was built um, through the orchards. If we walked through our um, orchard and then onto the next orchard, we would come to the Nord Highway, Highway 32, at about Sacramento Avenue. And uh, when I was really a young boy, there was a tilt-up hamburger stand there called the Jolly Cone. And in the, in the uh, Jolly Cone, there was a cigarette machine in the corner. And um, I thought, well, okay, this is where I'll buy cigarettes. Because the guy that ran the place was over on the other side cooking. He'd never know. So I had to decide what brand of cigarette to, to buy Uh, I wanted to be fair, Uh, all of the kids were smoking Marlboros, except for one of the boys who lived down the street, he smoked Alpines, and then one of the next door neighbor boys smoked Taritons, but everybody else was smoking Marlboros, so Lucky Strikes were out, Taritons were out, Alpines were out, and Marlboros were out, because I wanted to be fair to, you know, the tobacco companies. Well, there's about three dozen different brands so I figured the best thing to do would be start on the upper left-hand corner and pick that one and then move across like you're reading a page until you find a brand that you like. The first button was Chesterfield Straits. So I put my quarter in the slot and pushed the button and nothing came out because cigarettes were 35 cents and I didn't have a dime. Eventually, I fixed that, and I ended up with a pack of, of Chesterfield Straits.
1: Okay, so you get out, uh, you slipped it in the front pocket of your jeans, and you escaped through the screen back door of the dining area. And you wouldn't be getting those fries and hamburger today because you were gonna you spent your money on right. cigarette. So, would you start reading there, where your heart is pounding? This is on page ninety four.
2: Heart pounding, I raced through the orchards to an old shed that I'd predetermined would be a safe place to begin my exploration of the finer tobacco products and where I'd hidden a book of Hap's Matches. Making the boy cave, I paused for a moment to catch my breath. Then I fished in my pocket and pulled out the pack of cigarettes, Chesterfields, never heard of them before. The package was adorned with some sort of a shield or coat of arms and lettered in a fancy English-style stuff. Pretty sophisticated, I thought. I'm really going to enjoy these. I fumbled with the package until I found the slip of cellophane uh, that, when pulled, would unwrap itself, revealing a foil top that I tickled open with my nervous fingers. Tightly packed inside was an unknown quantity of something something tobaccoey, enveloped neatly and uniformly in rolls of thin white paper. I picked and pulled and uh, and picked and pulled until one until uh, one with a ragged end and its contents came spilling out. The first cigarette came free. Mangled, I looked at the thing. I must have really torn it up because unlike Marlboro's or Tariton's or Alpine's, this one had no filter. It must have busted off. Remaining in the package, I tossed the cigarette away, vowing to be more careful the next time. The second one came out more freely from the pack. Its contents still tightly and neatly wrapped, but there was no filter on this one either. I peered into the dark cavity left by my first two samples but saw nothing. The third one came out with ease, yet again, filterless. Finally, I reasoned that this must be how Chesterfields were made. Conveniently, I thought, you can light either end. So I picked one, stuck it in my mouth, and on about the third or fifth try, lit the other end. If you could somehow combine weak old barbecue ash from our grill... "'wilted spinach dried and dotted blue with mold, "'and perhaps some rusted steel wool. Wool. "'That flavor combination would fall well short "'of how awful what I'd just tasted tasted. "'I pulled the thing out of as my eyes began to water slightly. "'Maybe it's something you just have to get used to,' I thought. "'So I took another drag, then a third. "'Not good,' But maybe getting better? What, uh, what did I have to compare this to? For several minutes, I puffed and wiped my eyes, and puffed and wiped until my now dampening brow, and my now dampening brow until the thing was burned down close enough to scorch my tender fingers. Before I stubbed it out, I recalled several of the boys could light one end off the other if they held the new one steadily in their lips and touched the lighted tip of the nearly-spent butt to it. I'd seen Bogey do this in movies. Cross-eyed, I tried this rather clumsily. In the process, the orange cinder of my first smoke briefly seared my thumb and index finger as I touched it to the replacement, that wouldn't hold still in my unpracticed lips. Grimacing, I held on, thinking that this, perhaps, was something the Marlborough man had likely mastered. Maybe this contributed to his being so rugged and worldly and leathery. Less than halfway through my second, however, my forehead drenched, my body somehow sweaty, a chill hit me. I shivered a bit, and then I shook. I leaned back, then forward, And heaved a painful drive heave. I was in way over my head. Struggling to my feet, I staggered from my hideout toward the house. Grandpa Hap intercepted me. So, boy, he said, how do you like smoking them tailor maids? I looked at him through the watery eyes. How the hell do parents do adults always seem to know? My lips quivered, but nothing came out. It'd be a good idea not to start, he said, winking and slapping me on the back. I didn't. The next day, I buried the rest of that pack of Chesterfields in the bottom of the garbage can, surely that no one would ever find them there, and waited restlessly until the following Tuesday when the disposal would come and take our, and cart, our cart off our trash.
1: This is Dave Delgado, and he's reading from a chapter in his book. The book is Eden, Indeed. Tales, Truths, and Fabrications of a Small-Town Boy. And this chapter is entitled Chesterfield Straits. And many of us remember, I remember, for example, the commercial on TV for Chesterfields, the dancing cigarette packs of Chesterfields. You're too young to remember that.
2: And the spokesperson was Fred
1: McMurray. Oh, yes. So we uh, we can see this happening right there. There you are trying to, to smoke this cigarette. And... Uh, when his when your granddad says be a good idea not to start, and you say you didn't, I didn't, and so you learned <laughs> that lesson.
2: Well, I I wonder whether or not I learned the lesson, or that who um, whoever was looking over my shoulder when they placed the buttons on the cigarette machine made sure that the foulest possible. <laughs> Example was in the upper left-hand corner.
1: And so you went right along with the plan. Right. Well, there are so many chapters in your book that I enjoyed in the uh, photographs. But I'd like to ask you if you have a particular favorite—I won't say favorite singular because you probably have a lot of favorites, plural. So what are some of your favorite stories in your book?
2: There are a couple that I think are—, are um, I really enjoy I enjoy one where my brother and I are left off at the Baptist church on Sunday morning and mom heads home we never knew why um and we didn't particularly care for going to church because uh the the stories uh at one point the uh the, the story talked about uh the garden of eden and the animals and the Birds and the fishes of the sea, and and Eden was a beautiful place. And I thought, walking home, well, we kind of live in Eden, and that's where the title of the book came from. Was that uh, there was the biblical Eden, and then there was where we grew up, and so that that was a special story because of the image that I had of what um, the Sunday school teacher wanted us to see, and what we were actually living.
1: And you have a photograph. In that chapter,
2: I have a photograph of the of the church. Yes, and I actually was able to get that church from the uh, uh, that picture of the church from the First Baptist Church, which is now on Palmetto Palmetto Avenue. I contacted them and they sent me a number of pictures, and so I was able to swipe that one and have it included in the book.
1: Yeah, so that was another uh, of the photographs that I enjoyed that you included in your book. Um, so uh, that explains then why you called your book. Eden, indeed, because Chico is is a Garden of Eden.
2: Well, particularly Bidwell Avenue. Uh, yeah, it, it. I think there's still a, a a dwindling gang of us that grew up there <laughs> that think it's the best was the best place ever to grow up, and that we were really granted a gift by our parents to to have been raised there. And and many of them were like my dad; they just stumbled across it.
1: So. Well, that's kind of my situation too because I, the uh, end of my driveway, the, where the development is, is the creek, Bidwell Avenue. And I just enjoy so much walking along Bidwell Avenue. I get to know the dogs because people walk their dogs along there. And it really is, um, there's a sense of community. There, along as as you get to know your neighbors and yeah. the people who are walking their dogs, and there's a neighborhood library there now. So mm-hmm. I take books to contribute, and um, so I, I can I can picture these things that you're talking about. And you tell a story about the creek. <laughs> I hate to laugh, but when you and your brother had a canoe, actually it was your dad's, right? Well, yeah, and this was a very special canoe. It was a beautiful canoe. I, I yeah,
2: it, it was an old town guide special, 18 feet long, cedar planked with a green canvas cover that Dad had to have. He bought it after having paddled a similar model at a friend's cabin up on Bucks Lake. And he said, I just have to have one of those. So Your he,
1: dad loved the outdoors. Oh, right? he, yeah, dad. he did. He, uh,
2: there's a story toward the end where...
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. when he's old. But oh, he had yeah. to
2: have that. And so we had a lot of adventures in the... In the old town canoe, one of them was when my brother and I decided in February, about maybe a couple of weeks after this time of the year, that we would uh, put in at the five mile up in Bidwell Park. This,
1: this wonderful canoe, this very special canoe. canoe,
2: which yeah, I think Dad paid like over four hundred dollars for it now, and I've gone online to try to find them, and you can't find them for any kind of money that I can afford.
1: He uh, had to wait for a very long time to oh, get yeah, it. He, he didn't just walk downtown. And no, say, I he, I had like get, this he had canoe. to run out of Sacramento. Uh,
2: but we got on the, the uh, canoe at the five mile and thought, well, we we'll, dad dropped us off, and we'll you know, take an hour to paddle home. Well, the creek was running high, and it took us maybe six or eight minutes to get down to the one mile. So if you've done that on your bicycle, you know it's more than six or eight minutes. And uh, we portaged around the one mile and then got back in the boat and started down. But the storms from the week before had brought down a sycamore tree. And try though we might, we didn't miss jamming the bow of the boat underneath the sycamore tree. And the current cracked all the ribs. And so we ended up piling out the boat's ribs now, not you. yeah, Yeah, the ribs of the boat. We ended up uh, piling out of the boat and floating down until we could dig ourselves out um, and walked home, leaving dad's pride and joy about 150 yards up the creek stuck under a tree.
1: In fact uh, I've told a couple of people about this little incident and before I even all I have to say is and there was a sycamore tree that had fallen across the creek and they said uh oh yeah. they knew what
3: right, what right what
1: happened so what became of this beautiful handmade canoe
2: well my brother um, now ha- my brother eventually moved out north of town um, he lives on Anita Road and he built a beautiful house and he's got uh, five acres, I think, out there, very similar to our place on Bidwell Avenue with no creek and no orchard. But he was able to salvage the remnants of the boat and strip the canvas off. He bought canvas and he bought the uh, coating, the paint or whatever they call it, but he never got to putting it back together. So the frame of the boat is now suspended in the attic of his garage and I'm thinking the canvas that he bought years and years ago is probably rotting in a box. But every time I go out there, I go up there and say a little Hail Mary to the the boat, which is probably never going to see the water again.
1: After a break, I'll be back with my guest, Dave Delgado. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Dave Delgado, and he writes about having moved to Chico when he was just a little kid and lived on five acres in the small town of Chico. Now, I've been asking you about uh, chapters when you were uh, very young and through grammar school, high school, but you have stories beyond that. And you often make the point that we don't really grow up, that uh, we continue learning. In fact, in your dedication of your book, you dedicate it to your grandchildren and their grandchildren and their grandchildren. And you say, and hope that the growings up will continue for a lifetime. So even though I've been asking you about these things that happened to you as a child, you continue your story as an adult, and just so people see the the fuller picture, uh, you where did you go to you went to university? I went to
2: uh, I living on Bidwell Avenue. I was able to walk or ride my bicycle to every place I ever went to school. That would include Rosedale, Hi Ho Rosedale, whatever we were <laughs> Cougars or Chico Junior <laughs> High, um, Chico Senior High, and Then we called it Chico State College. Of course, it's the university now. And so my education ran through, well, no, my uh, book learning ran through Chico State, all the way through Chico State. My education hopefully continues.
1: Well, now, most people in that era, I mean, young people get married not so young anymore. But in those days, that's kind of what you did. You meet somebody in college and you get married. So people might wonder, well, Dave, did you get married?
2: I, I did. Um, and it, uh, I married a wonderful uh, young woman from Pleasant Valley High School, and I was at Chico High. So I should have known right then that there was going to be issues. Uh, but our uh, wedded bliss lasted about eight years, and, and um, we separated. And I ended up uh, taking a job um, – After teaching in Durham, I ended up taking a job down in the gold country as a vice principal for an elementary school. One of the things that prompted the stories was the fact that when I was a kid, my dad would come into the bedroom where Bill and I were sleeping or going to bed and he would sit at the foot of the bed and he'd tell stories about uh, growing up, um, In the Mojave Desert or in Utah or wherever it was that his father was running the restaurants for the Union Pacific in their depots. And I always remember stories he told about skinny dipping in the high school pool at Barstow High the day before they opened it with his friend Ralphie. And I thought, because I wasn't living with my daughter, I thought I need to start collecting some stories so that I can share with her the kinds of things that dad shared with me. That I am not wasn't able to sit on the foot of her bed and tell her, so that was really impetus for putting the the st- stories together. This is what it was like growing up in the fifties and sixties in Chico, just like this is what it was like in the you know twenties and thirties growing up in the desert for my dad.
1: Well, you know, it would be nice I think if your book inspires other people of your age who have grandchildren, children, and grandchildren to write down some of their experiences because I would just love to hear stories about my grandparents and my parents uh, like what you've recounted. One of the things
2: that, that um, uh, kind of reinforced that this was probably a good idea to, to a good project in which to engage was that um, about 10 years ago, uh, maybe a little bit earlier than that, I have a, a friend that I met when I was working in Tuolumne County who was an elementary school teacher, but he was really a geographer, and my undergraduate major was geography here at Chico State also. He would take me places, and we'd, we'd go out to Nevada and find places that you you never knew existed. One of the things that, that he showed me was one day was uh, we were coming from Utah to California. We stopped at Wendover off of Highway 80 and drove to the base of the hill and walked to the top of the hill and there was a huge concrete arrow that was 55 feet long, pasted off maybe 16, 17 feet wide and it pointed from west to east and there were some metal brackets in it and my buddy said, this used to hold a a tower with a beacon on it and the beacons were used so that in the early 20s, the uh, airmail pilots didn't have to land their planes and wait till daylight to, to fly. So I come home. Mom's at Little che- Chico Creek. She's now at a, a, a rest and care facility. She said, where have you been? I said, told her about some of the stories. I said, um, and there are these wonderful arrows that the airmail people used to use. And she said, oh, I know all about that because Hap used to fly the airmail, and that's how he used to get west to east and east to west. And I would not have known that because mom never told me. So it's coincidental. And those are the pieces of history that when a generation dies off without telling the story, the story dies with the generation.
1: Well, now, one thing I have not mentioned was your uh, experience with music, Dave. And uh, you mentioned in your book somewhere, and you mentioned the name of the harmonica by name— and so I'm wondering, uh, I, I know that you weren't prepared, you didn't practice, but would you uh, maybe regale us with a little uh, harmonica music? So my dad
2: kept a Hohner Marine Band in his car because he needed to have something to do when the car broke down.
1: I might mention that, that's the name, uh, Marine Band. The, is Ho- the name the of Marine
2: Band, yeah, it's a yeah. classic. Harmonica, and this one looks like it's brand new.
1: <laughs> it's um, because I haven't played it. <laughs> ah, okay.
2: Um, but yeah, and so his favorite song was the Sugar Blues, and you'll read about it in the book. But uh, yeah, so I haven't played a harmonica in a long
1: time. So here's your chance, Dave. Boy, I wish I could play Sugar Blues. That'd be cool. <laughs> I can't. Well, if you had had a chance to practice. That's
2: not sugar blues.
1: <laughs>
2: you can see how out of practice I am.
1: I thought that was fantastic, Dave, because I sprang this on you just out of the blue. You did not know I was going to ask you to play the harmonica. Well, this is
2: the key of G. And my norms are the key of Actually, they're the same. <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, thank uh, you. It's been an absolute delight to hear your music and to read your stories. Well, thank you. I, I, I'm happy
2: that that folks are enjoying them, but the really the audience was just my kids and my and my grandkids, and so that if people can connect to it, that's just a bonus. So I'm so pleased that you enjoyed it, and I'm delighted that you were able to take time to to invite me for this discussion.
1: Thank you, Dave. My guest has been Dave Delgado. And the title of his book, and the Eden refers to Chico, Eden Indeed, Tales, Truths, and Fabrications of a Small-Town Boy. Thank you, Dave. And next we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State.
0: Downwind of here, herons bring luck, so I was taught. When I see a tall bird, any lithe waiter fishing in rice fields on my way out of town, I think of fortune in the form of wings opening up. In cold marshes, worms are bait for bigger things, and bird cry makes the pussy willows rattle. The sound of buckshot does not always mean the end. Sometimes the only aim is to pretend you're after something big. Ripples are like bull's eyes disappearing We do the best we can and forgive the jigger poles seeking purchase in bottom feeder's mud. Why not hunt for all the right things in all the wrong places? You must know, wings open for you just once. Emily Grelly. Love in the Century You fall asleep before me. I go on watching the late night movie about the couple so much in love, they turn into blazing headlines. He loves her, then kills her. I move closer to your sleeping body. It is your breathing which calms me. But in the dark, all I can see is her face, her hands, that wide grin, and how she went so willingly into those woods, believing they were only looking for wildflowers. Caroline Kim.
3: Who? Who will be there? Who will listen to each word as they drift away in tiny canoes? Who will gently lift the white hospital sheet and hold her hand as she breathes her last breath? Who will capture her last smile and place it carefully in a pearl box to later toss in the sea? Her eyes, her hair, her skin, her mouth, the powder of moth wings, in so many directions. Who will change the damp sheets, the incontinence brief, and wet her tongue and lips with a tiny sponge on a stick? Who will place the rosebud next to her pale cheek as they open the windows so her spirit can get out? Who will lightly pass their fingers through her silver hair? Jean Varda.
0: call together geese going home over the man-made noise of the country thoroughfare above the whirring grind and beat tires on asphalt stirring air kind chortles of long necked gliders call my gaze to the sky a dozen or so foreign friends Swim in circles, the ether above, a reflection of winter's end, and the last cold winds they climb. Choreography of turns gather wanderers into a cluster of wings, not touching, yet following so close the leader's ascending ring. Plain winds benefit their north-south cyclic route, and still they rise up into the pillow-soft clouds, this cyclone of geese swallowed by the floating, vaporous screen, their perfect-winged bodies climbing the thin stairway unseen. The gathering flock appears out of the high mist, For a moment, still, each pair rhythmically driven by some profound will to follow the wise goose or gander that takes the lead, angling northbound out of that dense, hovering white beast. I went to spy that magical, never-touching dance in air, hearing the cooing chortle of sleek, long-necked flyers there. Oh, never so calm can I recall a forming into unison from any leader's signal than that smooth, flapping communion. Ah, the circle breaks. The objects of my distraction leave, shaping into the airstream of V navigating out of the rich high cumulus scarcely bending their perfect wings to bid adieu to us adieu this has been B.R. Barber
1: for more information on the writers you've just heard go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link
0: You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.